We'll begin reading in verse 37 of Luke chapter 11 and go into chapter 12 of the gospel here. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 37. And I will be reading, as is my custom, out of the New King James Version. God's word declares, And as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat down to eat. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Then the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness, foolish ones. Did not he who make the outside make he who made the ins, outside make the inside also? But rather gives alms of what is inside. Then indeed all things are clean to you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like the graves which are not seen and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. And one of the lawyers answered and said to him, Teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. And he said, Woe to you also, lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge, you did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in you hindered. As he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they had trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. I'm having a little trouble this morning focusing. Um, I got uh, some injury to my one eye yesterday, so I'm still struggling a little bit to uh, pick out some words. So, but I got through the Bible reading pretty decently. So if I blink a lot, that's why. Don't let it bother you too much this morning. Well, we are working our way through the Book of Jude, and we come into a section that, uh, having exposed the false teachers um, that Jude feels incumbent upon to expose to the church. 
he comes out to describe for us their judgment, what it is that's going to be waiting for them. And in so doing, he also reveals to us, I believe, some idea of what is behind what they are doing. We've already really seen that to some degree, for we've already seen that uh, they do it to satisfy their own sensual pleasures. They do it to, uh, for their own interests at heart, uh, that they want to draw all men to themselves rather than to Christ. And so they have manipulated the truth. We have found that. We have seen them in rebellion against authorities. We have seen them uh, drawing people away from uh, the power of God's word and its authority and seeking to draw them to themselves and their personal authority and trying to exercise that. And so we've taken our time to very deliberately go through and, and see Jude's examples, and he's going to continue this. He's going to use three examples in our verse today. I don't know that we're going to get through all of them, uh, all three of the examples. One of them we've already really touched on in the past. And then he's going to give us a series of examples that we're going to be looking at in the weeks to come uh, regarding comparing their judgment to other judgments. And many of these we are not always aware of or alerted to as these are the work of God and these are the things that God condemns, that these things should not be, and that they are taking what is something good and turning it into something dissatisfying at best um, and evil at worst and this is what these men are very proficient at they take what is good which is a Christianity the truth of God's word and pervert it twist it just enough that it becomes ineffectual and actually draws people not to Christ but away from him and so we want to begin looking into this next section of Jude, beginning verse 10, I'm sorry, verse 11, and looking at the judgment to come upon these individuals that we have studied for so many weeks. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer together this morning. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for the opportunity to look into your word. And as always, we pray your Holy Spirit might direct our thoughts that we might be in a conformity with yours that what is said might be in agreement with your word, that you might guard this time from error, from the opinions of men, from the philosophies of this world. And Lord, we want to lay ourselves open to you and not shut our hearts off or uh, be hard-hearted toward your work to us. And Lord, we pray that you might guard us from having hearts comparable to these that we are studying, that we might not be caught in their same judgment. We pray that you might again direct us into your word of truth that we might be delivered thereby. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. The verse starts off, woe to them. Very powerful declaration, not lightly used in God's word and very potent. We don't always associate with this. In fact, if our preachers did too much of this, we would get tired of hearing it. Uh, and yet, that is exactly what needs to be preached more and more often, and probably needs to be preached now more than ever, is the woe to them. It is making a 
line not just in the sand, is to make a line in the concrete and say that when you cross this line, you are ready for judgment. And that's what woe means, is that it is a, a time for judgment upon these people, that they are, they are in this realm where their eternity is in severe jeopardy, that their present is in, in great jeopardy. And so when we look throughout Scripture and find these terms, of course, the, the, probably the most famous one uh, is in Isaiah. He goes through many, many, he is, he is one of his favorite words throughout the book of Isaiah is woe, 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 woe. He pronounces woes upon Babylon, woes upon Assyria, woes upon all these nations on, on northern tribes and southern tribes. He has all these woes, and then, of course, when he is confronted with the heavenly scene itself, it is woe on me. <laughs> woe is me, I am undone. Because while I was seeing all the sin in all the nations around me and all the leaders there, I neglected to look carefully at my own sin. But when I saw... God in his perfection, I saw the beauty of that place, I realized I don't belong here, woe is me. I am the one deserving of judgment as well. And so the idea that, that a declared woe means that there is no hope for someone isn't true, but rather it is that they are in the throes of being fully judged if they do not repent. And this is the purpose of someone coming forth and speaking of woe. The woe is not to condemn them, but to confront them with sin. It is to condemn the action of what they are doing with the hope that it will bring them to repentance and that they will be able to come out of that. And from my study, why these woes are declared is the hope that they will come to repentance, that they will recognize the judgment of God is, is rightly upon me. And it is time for me to turn from my sin to him. And so Isaiah does this with an expectation. And yet, of course, we see that very seldom when someone comes up to you and says, woe is you or woe is you or woe is them, very seldom do we see repentance being the result. And in fact, we see quite the opposite. We see that they are often, like many people today, nothing new under the sun, many people today when they are confronted with their wrongdoing, uh, go on the attack to the one that is confronting them. The one that is pointing to the sin and saying that is sin, they become the enemy, and they're the ones that get attacked. And so Jude here is going to take, compared to the length of the book, a very long period of time to describe the judgment coming upon them, uh, not only to warn the church away from these false teachers, but also to warn the false teachers about this is where this is going to end if you don't repent from this. In the New Testament, there's really one New Testament writer that uses the word woe extensively, and that is Luke. And Luke does this, and the words that he is recording are not his own, they are that of Christ. And in Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 11 particularly, are where we're going to see these. We've read earlier this morning in our service from Luke chapter 11, we're going to be going there, to see the purpose and the pointedness and the response to the woes. So let's go there. Luke chapter 11. We've read it. Christ, of course, is invited to the home of a Pharisee. Isn't that exciting? <clears throat> Getting invited to the home of a Pharisee. Remember, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, were very wealthy. And so often we see Christ in these settings. Uh, we, we are more accustomed to seeing him in the settings of tax collectors' houses and places like that. But 
he was also invited to Pharisees' homes, and here he was. He comes into the home, and he's a very, very, very rude guest. Would you agree with that, having read that? Pretty rude. He comes in, he doesn't wipe his feet on your milk mat. He just tromps right in, doesn't wash his hands, just plops himself down, and he's ready. And then, when the conversation starts, you become the target of it. Are you inviting this guy back? <laughs> You've just decided not to invite Jesus back into your home. Think about that next time you get so offended that someone is, according to your standards, rude. We have a very dear friend that was a neighbor in Rio Rancho, and many people consider her very rude, and I think she's very refreshing because she just tells them what it is. And uh, I love having her over. Just tell me what it is. If you don't like that, just tell me you don't like it. Uh, my feelings aren't going to get hurt. I'm more hurt by feelings of people, or my feelings are more hurt, and I'm more injured by people who come in and put on a facade and then go out and go <laughs> to everyone else when they get out of my presence. Well, Jesus isn't like that. He's going to walk into the home, and he's going to sit down, and he has a purpose in this. He knows Pharisees very well. He knows the crowd that he is involved in. This is not going to be just a private dinner. This is going to be a big, big gathering, and uh, and there's all kinds of people here. There's Pharisees, there's lawyers, uh, scribes, they're all there. And Jesus comes in. He purposely, I'm convinced, does not wash before he sits down because he knows that that's so important to the Pharisees. He wants to make a point. So he sits down without washing to see how they're going to respond. And their response is predictable. They marveled at him. Uh, why didn't you... Why didn't you wash first? You sat down. You, I mean, there's the wash. You can't miss it when you come in. I mean, you come into a Pharisee. You can't miss the thing. It's kind of like that big mat where everybody's shoes are. And you walk in. You can't miss it. You're supposed to put your shoes on this big mat at this house. And then you don't. I don't know what other comparison I can really make in your culture. Uh, but he comes in, and this is, this is of a huge importance to the Pharisees. And Jesus Christ just blows it off. Was it a mistake? No. He had a teaching moment he wanted to provide them with, and that necessitated that he get under their skin right away. Not because he's a mean-spirited person. We would think that. Oh, he's just mean-spirited. He's turned, you know, trying to give him a nice dinner, and here he's going to make it a sermon. Your whole life is a sermon, folks, if you're a believer. Everything you should do has, should have some purpose and some intention to it. And Christ comes in and he says, I need to minister to these people. I need to give them an opportunity to repent. Uh, they're some of the worst of the worst. And they're the religious leaders of Israel. And they are considered some of the worst of the worst in Jesus' eyes. Not the multitudes, but in Jesus' eyes. So he's going to still minister to them. And that means he's got to confront them with their sin. And so he comes in and he's going to get under their skin immediately to ferret out their hypocrisy. And so before they can even really confront him, just the marveling, I mean, you can imagine they're just whispering, did you see that he sat down here, didn't you wash? Jesus answers, and he makes it very clear that they are them and there's him. Woe to them, Jude says. And Jesus from this very first declaration, makes it very clear that there is a them and a him. Do not confuse me with you. Do not confuse 
Jesus with them. And so he says, now you Pharisees, <laughs> you Pharisees, I'm not one of you. You fair, I'm a teacher, but I'm not a Pharisee. You Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. And this is tied into other passages where he's Christ talking about them as, as whitewashed sepulchers. That's probably one we're more familiar with. Uh, that you are all clean and white and dazzling on the outside. He's going to reference tombs here before he's done this engagement. Uh, but inside, what is a sepulcher really holding? It holds a dead body. It holds decay. It holds rot. He says, that's what you're like. You're all dazzling white on the outside. And inside, you are something nobody wants to look at. Nobody wants to have around them. You are, you are poison. You're disease. You're rot. So this is a consistent thing Christ has confronted them with, is where is your heart? Where is your heart? You're all about these external things. Are all my externals right? Do I look right? Do I speak right? Do I carry myself properly? Do I do the right actions? And there are plenty of people going through a lot of religious activity today whose hearts are as filthy as the Pharisees. Remember, these are not whom the world would identify as sinners. These are the ones the world would identify as righteous, but Christ recognized them as self-righteous. In fact, he begins, but woe to you Pharisees in verse 42. I've, I know I skipped a few verses. We're going to get back into them. How righteous are they? They tithe their mint and rue, and all manner of herbs. When they're trying to figure out what to tie, they're tithing down to their finest little elements of their house. He goes on. It says, you all have done this without leaving it undone. Whoa, verse 43, to you Pharisees, you love the best seats in the market, in the synagogues, greens in the marketplace. You want all the public applause of being a holy or righteous individual. You want all the public recognition and remember that in Jude, what we were talking about, we were talking about these individuals that come and they want to draw your loyalty and attention to themselves so that they can lead you where they want to take you instead of where God's word takes you. Instead of drawing allegiance to Jesus Christ, they're drawing it to themselves. They want the applause for themselves. And he finally just describes them as hypocrites. Earlier in verse 40, as foolish ones. Because they don't understand truly what righteousness is. For righteousness that is on the outside cannot penetrate the inside. But when your inside is made right, it will exude righteousness you cannot do anything but righteousness when you are have right thoughts when you have right motives when righteousness penetrates our inner being it will naturally come we don't have to hardly work at it on the outside we are attentive to it we know that there are other influences around us that want to draw us into sin 
But when the desire of our heart, when we hunger and thirst after righteousness, as David describes, then we will most naturally, in a very supernatural way, seek after righteousness because of God at work inside of us. And so we have to have this very careful balance in our teaching and living of Christianity. That while I can't see inside of you and I can only see what you present to me in your behavior, in your countenance, in your, in your mannerisms, and in your uh, patterns of life, I, I have to examine that a little bit, but yet I recognize that they could all be a facade. They could all be for looks only. And so we have to keep coming back to this point of emphasizing that where's your heart? Where's your heart? Where's your mind? What is it that you long for? And sometimes I do some sneaky little thing. They are sneaky. I'll admit to it. Some of my conversations with people are sneaky. Um, because I'm just trying to find out what's really important to you. You know, how important is your favorite sports team? How important is your favorite television show? This one thing on your schedule every week that you don't ever give up for anything. How important is that to you? How important is your stuff to you? Because that, in great measure, begins to reveal what is going on inside. That can't always be revealed by just watching the patterns of life there. Sometimes they are evident, but for a hypocrite like a Pharisee, you have to dig a lot deeper. And Jesus Christ here is purposely getting below the facade, under the skin. And that is irritating, people. It irritates me, and I know it irritates you, but it is so valuable, that kind of irritation. Why? Because until that irritation happens, we cannot expose the disease in our heart. You just can't do it. It irritates me that when I go to the dentist, the first thing I want to do is scratch on my teeth. Oh, hate that. But they always do it first, then they go in there to see if there's any cavities. It's irritating, isn't it? The first thing they have to do whenever you go in and you've got an infection, what's the first thing they do? They cut the thing open and they irritate it. Got to get under your skin to correct what's under your skin. And Christ here has healing in mind. Yes, he has cried out, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And, and the lawyers are over there saying, yeah, those Pharisees are bad guys. But wait a minute, they're our friends. Are you lumping us in with them? And the Lord says, you know, you make us look bad too if you say this without qualifying it. He says, well, that's because you're included. You lawyers. He says, woe to you because you load men with burdens hard to bear. And you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Now, this is not a lawyer like you think of a lawyer. Um, this, is, this is a religious lawyer whose purpose and whose job is to be expert in the law and its interpretation, which is technically what lawyers are, but not in secular law, in Roman law for them, or in American law here, but rather in religious law, the law of Moses. Uh, and they are the ones that are generally uh, 
responsible for setting up these hedge laws we've talked about in the past to say, well, you know, here's how to interpret this, and that means this, and it just, by, by, and surprise, surprise, the more laws there are, the more difficult it is to live. So why, whenever I go to the voting booth, do, you, do I vote no, 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 no. I vote no to everything. I'm sorry, I just do. It's my voting time in the booth takes about three seconds. People are over there reading, and I say, no, 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 no. I don't want the government to have my money because they don't deal with it well, and I don't want them to make more laws. Period. Just vote no. It's the easiest thing to do. No, 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 no. Please vote no. You can't get me in trouble with the IRS because we're not tax exempt, so we pay our taxes, so I can say that. Just vote no. These guys were making more and more and more and more and more laws, which made it harder and harder and harder and harder, harder people to be, quote-unquote, righteous. Because you can't walk down the side without thinking, oh, am I breaking a law? And yes, by the way, if you're walking down the sidewalk and spit, you just broke the law. Doesn't matter if you just had a gnat fly in your mouth, supposed to swallow it I guess weird huh and yet we can have all kinds of moral perversity in our society but these other laws exist Law and Jesus Christ woe to you you make all these external laws and make everybody conform to them and it makes it hard you've increased the burden and, you, and then you say it's from God and I'm going to Expose you. I'm going to tell you, you are ready for judgment. Not only that, not only has he <laughs> identified them for that, he is further in verse 47, I did, you're guilty for killing all the prophets. And this is going to take us back into Jude here very quickly. You're guilty for killing all the prophets. Can you imagine that? And, uh, I mean, that was thousands, hundreds, hundreds of years ago for some of them, thousands of years ago for others, when you go all the way back to, as far as he's going to go back. And Jesus says, and here's how, the, here's the proof that you're guilty, just as guilty as your forefathers, that you would be just as ready to line up and stone them, murder them, hang them, behead them, cut them in two, drown them, however it is that they died, you would be willing to do that too. And here's the evidence of it is that you build the tombs for them. That in this generation, the generation that saw Christ, it says that they were going to be required for the blood of all of his prophets. For they all pointed to one person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And when you reject Jesus Christ, you rejected all that the prophets have taught. That's why Jesus, after his resurrection, could walk along on the road to Emmaus and have a conversation, and he doesn't have to use the New Testament because it wasn't written. He gets to say, Everything about the Christ and what he would suffer and what would happen, the resurrection from the law, starting at Moses and going right through the law and the prophets. Because they all point to Christ. You reject Christ, you are rejecting all the prophets. All of them. So that generation, every generation since that has rejected Christ is guilty for the blood of all the prophets. And we usually start that around Moses or somewhere like that. But look where Jesus starts. I love this. Look at verse 51 of Luke 11. From the blood of Abel. That's where he starts it. So we go back to Jude. 
Jude starts off his condemnation of the false teachers and what their judgment is going to be upon them and their description of them. It says, Woe to them because they have gone the way of Cain. So why are we connected these two? Well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? Jesus is talking about Abel as one of the prophets. Jude is talking about Cain, who was the murderer of Abel. And I want to see you draw the connection that the woe that Jude describes here in Jude verse 11 um, is <laughs> very strongly tied to the woe of Christ in Luke chapter 11, where he identifies that you are responsible, when you reject the Messiah, you're responsible for the murder of every prophet of God that declares him. How did Abel declare Christ? He declared him by the sacrifice that he made. And yes, the evidence is, is that Adam and Eve, Abel and Cain, all understood that to cover sin, there had to be the shedding of blood. They understood that. It's not just because we have Hebrews 9.22 in our Bible that it says without the shedding of blood, there's no removal or remission of sins. Uh, we didn't have to wait till that. God already instructed Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, in that when he slaughtered an animal to cover their nakedness. They already had that testimony. They already understood that. And so here is Cain bringing his offering, which is a bloodless offering of fruits and vegetables that he raised. Here And the best, they were the best, but they were of his choosing. Here comes Abel, and he comes with a blood sacrifice. Not just because he raises critters, because he's a shepherd, but because that is the example that God had given to them already. And now... He is going to follow that example. And he's prophesying, he's declaring something, that there will be one day a sacrifice that will cover the sins of all men. A shed blood sacrifice, Jesus Christ. How did they know that? Because God prophesied it to Eve. We even have that recorded for us there in Genesis. There'll be one born of a woman, the seed of a woman. When women don't have seeds, they have eggs. And yet here's the seed of a woman is the one that's going to crush Satan's head. So they had knowledge of Christ. Abel was going to prophesy about that knowledge. He was speaking and declaring the truth that you cannot get to God without this sacrifice that will one day come, and as a picture of that sacrifice, I offer this little lamb or sheep, goat, whatever it was, this perfect little lamb, best of my flock, and I shed its blood to cover my sin as a picture of my trust that God will one day send a sacrifice that will shed perfect blood to cover the sins of all men. That's a prophecy. Cain didn't like that. See, Jesus has just taken his generation and said, you're responsible for killing Abel because you've rejected the declared word of Abel. So before you get on Cain too fast, that mean old Cain killed his own brother. Remember that every 
one who has heard, understood, seen, studied, and that's what these guys had done. These guys had heard, seen, studied. They, they knew the law. They knew the Old Testament. They knew the prophets. They even recognized the prophets by building them tombs. What did they do? They rejected what the prophets declared, hence making themselves guilty of their death. Because the prophet and his message can never be separated. Please remember that. The prophet and his message can never be separated. Don't think you can reject the prophecy and accept the person. It just doesn't happen. And that's what happened in Cain's life back then. He was not rebuked by Abel. Abel simply declared the truth. He was rebuked by God himself, who says, come in. He comes in and says, hey, why are you downcast? Why are you grumbling? Why are you discouraged? Why are you, what complaint do you have? If I didn't accept your sacrifice, it's because there's sin involved. Sin in your worship. You worshiped your way instead of my way, and that's sin. And I will not accept that kind of worship. God does not accept all forms of worship. Okay? Please realize that. He only accepts those forms of worship that he initiates, that he declares. And so we find Cain going to his brother and saying, hey, let's go for a walk in the field. Premeditated. It wasn't just they had an argument, he rose up and killed them. Um, the Septuagint makes it very clear that what Cain did was he invited Abel, let's go for a walk. And he already, got, he already had the place picked out for the ambush. Cain killed Abel because he didn't like the message. He wanted to do worship his way to make it bloodless and by so doing, he was declaring that he did not believe that God would take care of his sin. He was going to take care of it his way. And this puts you in a condition of being under judgment. Woe to you if this is the condition of your heart. To think that you can just ignore God's way and do it your way. And in this case, through an act of worship, Whose act of worship? Well, one's accepted and one's rejected. And you just wonder how many churches God goes through today and rejects some and accepts others. And so we examine our hearts. It is not by which songs they sing and how long the sermon is or how short it is. It's not really about all of that. It's really about what is the heart condition of the people because if they really want to worship God God's way, it will come out in all the other ways properly. We will come to him with honor. We will seek to bring him glory, laud, and honor. And we'll sing it with everything that we got in us to sing it. And we'll recognize that that is what worship really is, is bring glory to God, honor to him, laud to him. And who cares if I am humble myself and I don't sing quite on tune. It's not about the outside. It's 
about where it came from inside. So in our worship, we are de making declarations of what's important to us. And oh, that we would value worship to such an extent that we would recognize that I need to focus myself when I come in that door that this is a time of worship and I'm going to make it my priority in this time and during and that there is no time from the beginning to the end of this service that is so unimportant that I don't need to participate. Is the singing of God's glory so unimportant that you don't need to participate? Is the prayer so unimportant that you don't need to participate? Is the time in Scripture reading so unimportant that you don't need to participate? Months ago, I made a change in how we dismiss kids because I didn't want you to think that the song service is the time for the coming and going of people. It is a time of active worship. But if our heart isn't attuned to wanting to worship God with all of our strength, all of our mind, all of our voice, all of our energy, then we will just discount this and discount that. It's just not important. Is the sermon important enough to stay awake and listen to? Not just because it's my sermon, it's not. But is hearing the word of God that important part of our worship? If it's from the inside and it's a value, I'll take every, make every effort, make every requirement of myself. And if that means I have to go to bed earlier on Saturday night, I'll start then. I tell people 80% of your Sunday morning experience is totally dependent upon your Saturday night life. Whether you're going to bed early enough, whether you are coming in refreshed and invigorated or stained by the world because you've enveloped yourself in the world through media. But then it's my fault if I can't entertain you as well as they can. Where is our heart for worship? Is it more like Abel's or more like Cain's? These men come in and they are Cain's. He bought, brought the best he had, the best of his crop. How can you fault the guy? Well, God did. <laughs> God did fault him because you didn't bring what God wanted to bring. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were bringing what they decided was important to God, whether they or their herbs had been tithed out properly. Their seasonings, their mint, their tithing to the little flakes. Because that's important, because everybody could see that. No, what God is more important about, have you tithed what is inside? Jesus says, have you tithed what's inside of you? That's a kind of an interesting concept Christ confronts them with. Have you tithed what is inside of you? The fact is, is that you cannot captivate every single moment of time and give it to a direct worship of God. You just can't do it. God knows that. 
you're going to have to give your time, energies, thoughts to your employer. While you're employed, you've got to engage yourself and use your brain, your, your thoughts, your, your energies for their benefit. You have to do that. You've got to make them money. You have to make, produce something, whatever it is they want you to produce, you need to produce that for them so that they make money so that you still have a job so you can feed your family. All right? God understands that. I'm in a very precious role, and I, I know that, I, 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 that I get to not have that incumbent, encumbrance upon me. And so I can go anywhere and just kind of sit there and study on it and meditate on it and work my way through things, and you pay me to do that, and I thank you very kindly. But the fact is, is that you don't have that liberty. You also have to take care of your family. Some of you are discovering with new children how much energy and thought <laughs> that requires of you. And it didn't just start with kids. It started as soon as you got married, really. Now you got to worry about that other person, not just yourself. God says, I want a tithe of your insides. I want you to take not just five, ten minutes. We work really hard with Word of Life clubs to get children to take five or ten minutes in their Bible a day. That's our goal. Ten minutes a day. Out of 24 hours, we're trying to get ten. Maybe if we're really doing wonderful, 15 minutes. A quarter of an hour out of 24 hours a day to spend time in God's Word, to spend time thinking about something other than the world. And I have to believe the reason it's such a struggle for our children is because they don't have many examples to follow. How much time are we spending engaging our heart and our mind in spiritual matters? in things that are of eternal consequence. And so we see the instructions of, of being constant, that is faithful in prayer, of, being, of walking in the Spirit. And, and Christ here says, you should be concerned more about tithing your insides. How much time have I given? Let's just say I give him 10% of my day. 10% of 24 hours. Let's see if I give, what, how long is that? <laughs> 2.4 hours a day. How long is that? That's one movie. See, you have no problem giving the world's 2.4 hours. That's a long movie. Okay, I agree. <laughs> It's a long movie, but it's a movie. Oh, kind of burns, doesn't it, a little bit? Christ says, just try to tithe your insides a little bit. You're so worried about the offering box. I'm not worried about the offering box. The offering box takes care of itself once your insides are right. 
We don't need to preach more and more about money. We need to preach more and more about your insides. Have you tithed your heart, your mind? And so Christ condemns these Pharisees. They say, you're a hypocrite. And most of us fall into the category. And so we have a woe to you. And God confronted Cain and said, listen, you're in big trouble. Sin lies at your door. The problem isn't that you're chemically depressed. The problem is you're a sinner and you won't, won't fix it my way. You want to fix it your way and that won't work because I won't accept it ever. Fix it. And Cain does exactly what so many do when they're confronted with their sinful worship. And that is they go on the attack. Cain attacked his brother Abel and murdered him. I don't know what he thought that would do between him and God, how that would fix it, but murder him. And that is man's response to the truth is to become violent. It's just from way back then all the way through. And let's just go back to Luke chapter 11 and find out what happens to Jesus. Remember, he came to your house to have dinner with you. He didn't wash his hands when it was really important to you that he washed his hands. And you know he knows it. He knows you know he knows it. But he didn't do it anyway. And then he says, there starts declaring all these woes upon you and your other guests. How insulting. And now he makes you guilty of every prophet's blood all the way back to Abel, the first. You're guilty of a ball. And we come to chapter 11. And the end of the chapter says, verse 53, And as he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently. What did they do? They did exactly what is in human nature to do, that if we are not willing to repent, we attack. We attack violently. I mean, they weren't just going to start a rumor mill about him it says they began to cross-examine about many things lying in wait for him seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him why because that accusation of blasphemy or error would bring an opportunity to stone him to death they were looking for to take his life because they truly were guilty because they rejected the prophet's message they also rejected the prophets they were guilty of all those prophets bloods all the way back to Abel, and Christ says, you're guilty. Woe to you, you're under judgment. Get it fixed, or else. That's what woe to you means. Get it fixed, or else. All that's waiting for you is judgment. And you have two responses possible to this intrusion into your dinner. One is to humble yourself. Fall on your face before God Almighty and beg for his mercy repentantly say I'm sorry you're right we are all about the externals we have nothing but greed and envy and self-interest inside please forgive us please change us that's salvation transform me from what I 
am, which is just a tomb. In this context, Jesus says, you're just like a, you're not even like a whitewashed sepulcher in this setting. He says, you're like a, someone buried down there and people are walking don't even know that you're down there. That's how dead you are inside. That's the response God wanted. The response, the other direction is vehement rejection. Violent rejection. And I think we've all probably seen it, if not experienced it ourselves. Depending upon what kind of personality you have, I'm the kind of personality when I see someone doing something wrong, I tell them to stop, and I tell them that's wrong. Um, not be, I, I just do that. I just, I, I didn't do it this week though. I, have, I had an opportunity this week, and I said no, I'm not going to do it. But I should have done it anyway because that's what I usually do. I see, you'll see someone stealing something. I'm walking and say, "Stop that! That's wrong." You can't believe how many times when you confront someone like that, what they do, they go on the attack and you become the enemy. Even if I'm in a park with a whole bunch of children, someone rides a motorcycle across, and I stop them, I say, you cannot do that. You're putting all these children at risk. You, this is wrong. It's against the law. Keep your motorcycle on the street, blah, blah, blah. You'd think that I had committed some horrific crime. And he's threatening to pull out a gun on me. I'm the bad guy. You see, when our heart is wrong, violence is the response to confrontation over our sin. We have a violent response, whether it's by words or actions, we have a violent response to those that confront us with our sin. But if our heart has been humbled, then our response is always going to lead to repentance. Godly sorrow brings repentance, the Bible says. And so these individuals that Jude is examining, saying they are going the way of Cain, out of envy, instead of submitting themselves to the truth they know, they know the truth because they have a knowledge of God's word, and they're coming to you, at presenting themselves as teachers of Christianity. But yet, they are empty inside of the truth, and like Cain, they are trying to redefine everything to their own liking instead of submitting themselves to God. And they have reworked worship in their own image instead of in the image of God. And they want to do it their way instead of God's way. And they're going to lead you right into it. There is one element of Christ's condemnation of the lawyers that I have skipped because I want to bring it forward now that I see excessively going on in too many of our, at least the public preachers, the ones that you can get access on TV. I'm not in, obviously I'm not in a lot of churches, I'm just in this one. <laughs> Jesus said this about them, is that, and it correlates with what Jude said about false teachers, because they didn't understand it. They're speaking about things they don't really understand. He says, you kept people from accessing the truth. Let's go to Jude 11, and I'll read it for you there. Verse 52. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in you hindered. 
Luke 11, 52. They took it away, which means that they need to know that it existed. Not that they acknowledge it as truth, but they knew that this knowledge existed and they hid it from people because they did not receive it themselves. It says you wouldn't go into it. It says you did not enter in yourselves. They know the truth, but they didn't invest themselves in that truth. They have rejected it themselves, and so they're going to keep you from even looking into that as truth. Oh, you don't need to study that. I'll tell you what you need to know. Boy, when anyone tells me I don't need to open my Bible, I'm going to open my Bible three times more to examine what they're going to teach. You see, the way of Cain and the way of these false teachers, the way of the Pharisees and the lawyers, the, the scribes here, is that not that they are ignorant of what God requires. It's that they've rejected what God requires. And because they've rejected it, they don't want you to even know about it. And so it says you're, they're going to hinder people who are starting to investigate. It's like, oh, no, 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 don't bother that. No, I, you, you should be reading God's word. I'd I love for you to hear you come to me and challenge me on some things you've read in God's word. I love that. It means you're spending time in God's word, and, and this is not going to return void in your life. There's going to be a fullness, a righteousness that, that it's going to, envelop you in this. You're going to learn God's ways. It's part of being a follower of Jesus Christ. I don't know how you can follow somebody you don't know where they're going. But these individuals know the truth exists, the key of knowledge, as Jesus says. They didn't accept it themselves, and because of that, they don't really want you to even know it exists. They're going to hide the truth from you. They want to snuff it out. They want to make you believe that it's not there. That you just need to depend upon them. They want to hinder you from entering into eternal life. We're going to talk about motivations and things we already have to some degree. Um, we will do that further. But when we talk about the way of Cain and Abel, this is about worship and about the prophets and about recognizing that we are declaring something. Either that we honor, bring glory and laud to God and his ways, or we're going to do it our way, and we're going to decide what's important not important. And either we're going to react to someone challenging us on our worship style and on our walk style and on our tithing of our insides, either by humbling ourselves and saying, you're right, and I need to change that, or we're going to 
react violently and make that person our enemy to the point that we're willing to kill a brother because we don't want the reminder. We're willing to kill such a one as Jesus. Find a cause to put him to death. When really the only reason we wanted to is because he offended us. Because he exposed our inside. We are called upon to beware. Don't let this woe fall upon you. And if you think you're not, this isn't <laughs> apply to you. I would challenge you to revisit Isaiah chapter 6. Instead of comparing yourself to whoever it is you think that you don't apply to, to Cain himself perhaps even, uh, remind you that the comparison is not between you and other men, it's between you and the Almighty. Which is why we sang about him this morning if you were attentive to what we're seeing. And our worship be that which comes from the inside. And no one should need to prod you to sing. No one should need to prod you to give. No one should need to prod you to minister. No one should need to prod you to do anything. We're simply stirring up that which should already be inside. Are we alive on the inside? Or are we just full of death? Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your word. And it's challenged this morning, and we truly are challenged. And now it's time for our reaction. And our gut instinct is to do what all men do. That is to deny it and then to attack. But Lord, you have done a work in us, or so we claim so, Lord, our response must be different. We pray that we might humble ourselves and that you might find us in such a condition that we want to conform ourselves more and more to your Son, Jesus Christ, because of our time spent in your word and with your people this hour. And, Lord, forgive us for thinking that any aspect of worship is not worth the time and energy to engage ourselves in it completely with all of our heart, mind, soul, strength, all of our attentions, with a focus that demonstrates that we understand what we are doing is of the highest value of all the actions we commit. Lord, help us to worship you in spirit and in truth whether in this place or another place. Lord, help us to consider how we might better tithe our insides. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.